0: Hey, man, that is always always a privilege, you know, when we get a chance to celebrate our children, get a chance to celebrate what God is both doing in and through us. They, it happens quick and it happens fast and they, they go, I'm, just, I'm in the process now about to sending out our second daughter to college and, you know, in the Lord, you know, you, you blink and then they're already telling you what to do. And you just but you but you keep praising them. You keep praising them. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to the book of Luke. To the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18. We are continuing in our series, storytelling. You know, and when we talk about stories, I think there's a couple of realities that we recognize that Jesus understood, right? He understood that, you know, people are people, but And then everybody has a story. And so in this, basically what we see, one of the number one tools that Jesus uses is stories. It's a way that we are able to communicate to people's hearts. And he gives us these things that we call parables. And these parables are simply small and short statements that God uses to drive home a point to us um, as believers. And so we've looked all throughout the book of Luke. We've looked at the variety of different parables. And today we come... To a, a, a sequence or the second half of a sequence of parables that we are going to, to get a chance to study and look at today. Um, if you guys, I don't know if you guys have ever heard kind of um, the, this kind of uh, tale or story. It's the, the idea, it's called The Price of a Comma. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that, but it was. It was an interesting story and i think it kind of helped set up what we're going to be looking at today as we look at luke chapter 18 9 through 14. it says it talks about this it says it talks about a woman who was touring europe and she wrote a telegram it was back in the day when they used to write telegrams and her husband um and she wrote a telegram to her husband because she found this wonderful bracelet and in here basically i want to kind of show you on on here that there, there was this wonderful bracelet and this is what the telegram wrote She said, have found a wonderful bracelet, price $75,000, may I buy it? Her her husband responded immediately with the message, no, price too high. Amen. (laughs) Amen. No, (laughs) price too high. But what was interesting about it is that the, the telegram operator missed one small detail instead of transmissioning the telegram in the way that the husband wrote it, what the telegraph operator, she wrote the words, but she missed something. So the wife received, instead of no price too high, what she received was no price too high. (laughs) And you see, that in that very essence, that, he, that she came home excited, bringing the news back to her husband with the $75,000 bracelet. So after she showed her husband, her husband, to her, his surprise, he was shocked and basically ended up filing a lawsuit on the telegraph company. And guess what? He won. And, get, and from that point on, telegraph companies required that all of their operators, not just add a punctuation, but they, add, they told them that you need to spell it out for. And what we see in this is that oftentimes is that when we think about the little things, sometimes those little things can make significant impacts. And it's oftentimes when we think about those little things is that when we make some of these little mistakes, that we have, we'll see our lives kind of having massive results. And so what ends up happening oftentimes in the life of a believer, we go from one extreme all the way to the other. And we make it our commitment, we make it our aim, that we are never, ever going to make that mistake ever again. And so we overcompensate, just like we saw with the telegraph companies. They said, not only are you going to just add commas, you're never, you're going to write it out just to make sure that we have. It kind of reminds me of the times where we, we, we can look back at certain times in our lives, certain events in our lives, where we see that there was something, a, a mistake, a little mistake that we made, but now we see um, that we've overcompensated for that mistake, and we're doing something completely different, right? And this is really where we're at today. We're, we are in this parable, and what I want to do is I want to read the parable, and I want to talk about something that we often overcompensate. And it comes from the little mistakes that we've made that has made significant impact in our lives in our overcompensation that we often do. And I'm gonna reread the parable. In Luke chapter 18, nine through 14, after Jesus gives us the the parable in one through eight, talk about the parable of prayer and the persistent widow, he gives us now in in verse nine through 14, he says this, he also told them this parable. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not greedy, I'm not unrighteous, I'm not an adulterer or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a 10th of everything that I have. You see, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me a sinner. I tell you this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humble, But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray again and go before the Lord. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for your words. We thank you for your text. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would open up our hearts that we may receive the wonderful things from your law. Father, we are thankful, Lord, for the stories, for these parables to help to, to prick us in a way, to help enlighten us, Father, in the way to make healthy Decisions as we submit to your presence, as we submit to your work, to do what you've called us to do. So, Father, we're thankful for this time. And Lord, we'll do our best to give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And amen. So, in here, basically, early on in the the first part of the text in verse 9, very similar to what we saw in in chapter 18, verse 1, is that Jesus or Luke gives us at the very beginning the reason why Jesus is telling this parable. Unlike most of the parables that the point or of the parable comes at the end and the explanation of why he is saying it. But right here, very similar when he was talking about prayer, he tells them at the very beginning. Luke tells us that this is the point of the parable. And the point of this parable, um, it says that there was someone or some people that are trusting in themselves— when it comes to attaining righteousness. There's a group of people who are trusting in themselves when it comes to obtaining righteousness. The idea of righteousness simply means to be in right relationship with God. Right, That's the question that you and I, we're often asked. That's the question that many people, that if there is a God and if there is heaven, then and at the point of death, what's the standard? How do we know that we will be in right standing with God? And the Bible is very clear with us. The Bible, in First John, it tells us in 5.13, it talks about this idea that all these things were written so that we may know that we have right standing or that we have eternal life with God. And here we are, Jesus, after he's talking about the persistency in prayer. I really think that this this parable right here is placed perfectly because oftentimes we can think that the prayer life of the persistent widow is the thing that moved God. But it wasn't the persistency of the woman that did it, that declared her righteous. It was God that declared her righteous. And so what we see is that he tells us, in the Bible, Luke brings these together. He says he also, trying to make sure that we connect the last parable to this parable, he also tells in this parable that someone who trusted in themselves, and they trusted that they can declare and be declared righteous in their own works. And that caused a misunderstanding there, but it also caused them to look down upon God. And so the problem that we see right here is that he, he begin it begins with this parable, and he says, in verse 10, he says this, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right? One of the things that we got to understand, because the question is, is what's the problem? And if we talk about the problem that we have here is the idea of trusting in yourselves. And when we trust in ourselves, the problem that you and I oftentimes may um, be able to regard or to be able to identify and trusting in ourselves is a, is a term in Christianity that we use is called legalism. It's called legalism. You see, Right here, he's going to present two different types of people. He gives us one, the Pharisee, and then the other, a tax collector. And as he declares in the very beginning part of this, that, these, that, we, that the problem is, is that one is trusting in themselves and the other is not that this problem of legalism is a couple of things. And before we kind of jump into the the meat of this parable, we got to first define what I mean by legalism so that we can get a backdrop and understanding of what's going on in this text. First, let me just say legalism is about trusting in yourself to keep a system that earns the right to stand before God. Legalism is about trusting in yourself to keep or to maintain a system that earns you the right to stand with God. Legalism is a dependence on the law rather than a dependence on faith in Christ. It's when we trust ourselves. You see, legalism is about seeking to be justified. And over and over again, what we see in the text is this idea that we are legalistic and we can become legalistic. You see, but the Bible talks about legalism in a lot of different ways because we can put legalism in just kind of one category, but there are many different types of expressions of legalism. In legalism, we see one could be kind of a moral legalism, you see, and, and, and moral is this kind of, it's a lot of times is what we put in legalism, is just about morality. It's about if I can do the right things or act the right way, if I can stop drinking, if I can stop smoking, if I stop getting drunk, if I can stop having sex outside of marriage, if I can stop doing, if I can stop doing all of those things, then God would be, I would be acceptable to God. So there's moralism. But the, there's not just moralism, but there's also asceticism, is that the way that I earn my way to God is that if I fast all the time, fast 40 days um, a night, if I keep doing Lent each week, I come to Sunday, every single thing is that I, if I keep doing that, there's a whole faith, a religious tradition that's called monasticism that is built on this idea of the more I can just crucify and sacrifice, the more God will be able to accept me, the more I will be in right standing with God. So there's moralism, there's asceticism, but there's also emotionalism, that I feel like my connection and God values me more, the more that my heart is connected, the more I weep and I'm crying with God. or I'm crying about the things of God. There's there's this, this thing, and ultimately these things are telling us that me and God are good when these things are alive in me. There's also mysticism, dreams, visions that we have. There's intellectualism. The more I know about my Bible, the more I can understand, the more I can argue, the more I understand the Scriptures, the more Scriptures that I read. There's all of these things that, that we have. And then another one is there's traditionalism. You know, it's in, that, in all of these things that we see, that this list that we have, they, these are all isms. And each and every one of us will replace faith in Christ with one of these isms to try to earn or to merit favor with God. And so what we do is that we live a life with he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And he loves me when I'm doing these things. He loves me not when these things are void or these things are absent in my life. You see, so when you read this very first verse where it says, he also told him a parable, someone who trusted in themselves. Don't just read just that that statement alone. Think about, okay, how can we? How do we trust in ourselves? We see it all the time. I remember one of my pastors used to grow up. um, When I was growing up, he used to say that, you know, he's been in ministry for over 30, 40 years, and he's like, he's never missed a quiet time. And I remember, I was just like, man, I want to be able to to be like that, to be able to say that, that, that after 40 years of um, walking with God, that I will never, ever miss my quiet time. You see, but the problem is, is that when he was saying that, you know, and I've heard him also say, it's not about the quiet times that are every day, or not missing a quiet time. The problem, the, the thing that he says was, is that I don't trust myself. And so I constantly go to God's Word. But you see, if you just simply hear the statement, what you will hear is that every day, spend time with the Lord or read God's Word, and that will equal God's favor or God's love. And you see, and this was what happens is when we start cultivating. And see, one of the things that we got to first understand as we read the text, because we can easily, you know, read the text because we said a Pharisee, and we're going to talk about what the Pharisee does, but we can just say, oh, okay, we're not the Pharisees. But one of the things that we have to come to acceptance is simply this, that we, to some degree that we are all functioning legalists. We are all trying to be justified. We all want to know. When the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor, we are all like the lawyer who asked the question, so what does it mean to be, to love God? What does it mean to love our neighbors? You see, legalism is something that oftentimes is hidden, it hides itself in the cultural norms. It hides itself in this kind of it, in the things. And, and oftentimes it can clone itself with just simply spiritual disciplines. It can clone itself with um, sharing your faith in quiet time or going to church or going to city group. It can clone itself in those things. You see, as I'm talking about legalism, what we got to recognize is that all of these things could be could be good things. Legalism is so deceptive is that when we, the problem is, is that when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. The problem is is that when we when we take the means of which relationship with Christ and with one another is cultivated to become the very end of what we're doing. So it becomes about prayer. It becomes about reading the word. It becomes about sharing our faith. It becomes about the thing that we're doing. And this is the the very reason why we oftentimes say Christianity is not about a religion. It's not about the do's and don'ts, but it's about a relationship. But we understand that oftentimes that every good relationship has rules. Every good relationship has boundaries, but you create the boundaries and you create the rules in order to have an effective relationship. But you can have the rules and you can have the boundaries and you can have the systems and that have authentic relationship. It's very similar to that if I told you, my wife and I, that we go on date nights all the time and we, on a consistent basis. And what I've recognized and I've realized many times that we can consistently go on date nights every week and not feel personally connected with one another. So you can have your systems, but it's where your system's leading you to. And ultimately, as Christians and as believers, we are saying that it's our system that's leading us to relationships. And so what, what the author, what Luke is saying right here is he's ultimately saying that there's ultimately two consequences that comes for focusing in on the letter of the law versus the intent of the law. The intent of the law. You see, the letter of the law causes us to look to ourselves to maintain a system, so I remember many times just using the analogy Angie was saying, hey, I just don't feel connected to you. And I was like, "And then whatever I do, I start going down my list. Where well, we went on a walk, we, we did, we went on the date night. You remember when I bought you, you know, and I started going down my laundry list of things, right? Because that's what we're doing. We're, I'm seeking to justify myself. That the problem is not with me, it's the problem is with you. Because I've maintained my system. And the problem with that is, is that when you, just like the first Adam, are not willing to understand and to embrace your limitations, you start blaming everyone else. It's the woman you gave me. It's the system you gave me. It's something else. And so the first thing that we see is that there's first a trust in self. And when we are not willing to embrace our own or we break our own trust in ourselves, we end up beginning to look down on others. And that's what you saw in the second part of that. He says, he says, someone who trusted in themselves, and they thought they were righteous, and they looked down on everyone else. They looked down on everyone else, right? And so as he goes in, he talks about this idea of legalism. And this legalistic trap, what it does, it creates this performance in us. Right? He loves me, he loves me a lot because we say, and it's built off of good things, and we'll use verses like this idea that God is holy and he's calling us to be holy. Right? And, that, and, it's, and it's true in its scripture, but the question becomes is how we become holy. And but many of us put on the kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we begin to perform. And what that produces is performance, it produces he loves me, he loves me not, that we got to earn, we got to merit God's love. And and it produces a lot of fatigued believers, burned out believers. And so Jesus wants to reshape our perspectives. He wants to reshape. So he comes back to these two men. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. What we have to understand right here is the contrast between both of these two parables in the same way that we saw the contrast in the last about the two people that were introduced, that we want to see the same contrast here between the two, that God is giving us two polar opposites. Last, in the last parable, he was talking about um, there was a, a judge, and that judge represented the powerful. And then he talked about the widow, and the widow oftentimes in the book of Luke um, represented the powerless, And as he was talking about the powerful and powerless, how they were approaching God. And right here, what we see is the righteous and the unrighteous here. You see, in that day that we would understand that the right, when they said the priest or the Pharisee, that all Jews would have said, oh, they are the most righteous of all people. If anybody's righteous, they are. And they represent this righteousness or a man-made righteousness that we have and that we understand. And this is the characteristic that many people would have possessed. And so we see right here that the Pharisee, it says the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, right? And so we got to understand how is the Pharisee portraying or how is he um, talking to God? God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, I'm not greedy. I'm not unrighteous. I'm not an adulterer. And even like this tax collector, I face, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I had. Right. And so what does he have? There was the first a misunderstanding and a thought that he thought he was righteous. And the other thing that he says, he began to look down on others. Right. He thought his behavior was righteous, but it wasn't. And so really what he was, his problem was, is that he was focusing in on, what he thought was the letter of the law, but he had a distorted view of the law. He had a distorted view of what made him righteousness, righteous. And see, this distorted view that we see is that, in that what oftentimes when we see this legalism, legalism seeks one to justify. It seeks justification. It attempts to justify our actions. Not only does legalism seek to, seeks justification, but legalism also avoids condemnation, right? Because it attempts to judge others. I'm not the problem. It has to be somewhere else. It has to be somewhere else, somebody else, right? It's not on me. But legalism also desires validation. It desires validation, right? Seeking to justify himself. And so here we are Right? I kind of see this Pharisee coming before. And I always like to give, give, give me, I, I, like, I like to give the Pharisees a benefit of a doubt. I like to see in here that, he, that he's, he's, he's like you and I in many ways. That he's going to God with sincerity, but he's going to God sincerely wrong. He's going to God that's really in the way that the culture has taught him to go. And he's basically God. I'm not like the rest of the people in my job who's all about making money, you know, I try to, to do my best. God, I'm not like the rest of those people who are just wilding out. God, like everybody else is sleeping around on their wives. Everybody else is doing dirt, right? God, I'm not like so-and-so or so-and-so and just fill in the blank. Right? And oftentimes, those are the prayers that we say, when we, especially when we're going through hardship and hard times, because it's like, God, like I'm not doing, I'm not like, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. Why? He says, I thank God I'm not like that. I'm not those people. He says, God, I, I, I come to church each and every day. I, I fast two times a week. I give a tenth of everything. You see, in that time and in that day, during the religious seasons that... Um, most kind of faithful Pharisees, they would have fasted every Thursday and every Monday. And basically and what it was, it was a symbol of a time when Moses went up and down the mountain when he went to go get the law. And so he, this was something that they would do on a consistent basis to show their commitment to the Lord. Very similar to us that if we were to say in our day, and this was written as like, Lord, I go to church every week. Every week I go to church. And when I go to church, I give my my, my offering. I serve on the praise team. I I give my time to the host. I do what I know to do. And so in this, he's he's telling them. But the problem is in that what we see earlier is that he's putting his confidence in what he does, and that's a wrong perspective to have. You see, when you begin to do this, what, what legalistic and are even when we follow just the letter of the law and not the intent of the law, what we do is that we begin to begin to brand Christian maturity, and we begin to focus on outward con, outward conformity versus inward obedience. We begin to focus in on the types of things, and that's the, re- the reason why oftentimes what we see is that what we, we look at people and we say, oh, man, this is a godly person, or that is a godly person. And what we end up doing is that we start mimicking their behaviors, if that's the sign of godliness, right? And you just see us mimicking those things because we focus on outward conformity instead of inward obedience, So the Bible tells us that we are to love one another, right? And what does it mean to love one another? And I love in 1 Corinthians, it talks about um, 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love is patient, it is kind, it doesn't seek after its own. And it gives us this list. But then even before that, it says, but you can go out and feed the homeless and, you know, do all of these great things. But if you do it without love, you see, God is the one who looks at the heart while we look at the external, but we focus on the outward conformity versus the inward obedience. But also what we see is what we, what I've been talking about is that we focus on the letter of the law versus the intent of the law. I remember, you know, oftentimes I'm I'm trying to encourage my children, and I, you know, I tell them, like, especially growing up, especially my boys, I says, hey, you guys, don't hit one another, right? And and I'll say, don't hit one another, right? And then as the, but the, the problem is, is that if I don't explain them why I'm telling them not to hit one another, they'll miss, the com- they'll miss the point completely, right? Because we said don't hit one another because that's not loving to your brother. But you see, if you take that to the extreme and they were just like, well, if DJ is all of a sudden choking and Brayton sees DJ choking, he was just like, well, dad said don't hit him, <laughs> right? And he re- you see, the problem is, is that he focused in on just the behavior and he understood the letter of the law, but he missed the whole purpose of the intent of the law. The most loving thing you can do at that point is hit him, right? And You see, and this is the idea that oftentimes as believers we forget this and we see this all over throughout the scriptures because when they don't take something as simple as the Sabbath, and Jesus is about to heal a man on the Sabbath. And where the intent of the Sabbath is, is that, that we rest and allow God to be at work even while we rest and that we put our confidence in him and not in our own work. Basically, what they, what they took, the letter of the law, and they said they would rather a man continue to stay broken, continue to be sick instead of to follow the letter of the law versus the intent of the law. And so you see Jesus pouring into them and, and speaking that says, you've missed it. You've missed it. You see, because just like the Pharisees were all functioning legalists, this is the very essence of the, the, the Talmud that comes. You see, the Bible tells us that we are to not work on the Sabbath, but they were just like, well, I don't even know what it means not to work. So if, if, I, if, I work, if I do this, if I do that, and they were just like, I just need to know exactly what I can and what I can't do. And oftentimes what we do is that we write out the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. In our lives, a depending in the relationship with the spirit, because of us simply following the letter of the law versus the intent of the law. And this is what legalism does to us. The other form that we see in legalism is that we make our law God's law. You see, and this is one of the and not, not only do we make our law God's law, we attach God's love and His approval to our law. We see this from the very beginning. From the very beginning, when God tells Adam and Eve, he says, don't eat or drink, or don't eat from the tree. And Eve, when the, when the serpent acts, Eve, he was just like, it says, don't eat, don't touch, don't. And she just start naming other things. It's when we begin to add to God's law. We begin to add to him, add to his law, right? And this is probably one of the most common forms that we have, that we see taking place in the Bible. Jesus rebukes this very essence. He says, you teach human traditions as if they're the word of God. And he says, don't, don't major on the things that I don't major on, right? It was kind of reminding me of of college. And and again, this is one of those times where we overcompensate. I remember I was in college and, you know, I was just coming to know the Lord. I came to know the Lord as a sophomore in college and I'm just coming in and I go to the Christian retreat. I don't know if any of you guys been to like those, you know, the youth retreats and all that, when you're just like, I'm on fire for the Lord and just like, I'm I'm willing to do anything. So I went on my retreat. Right. And then, you know, that person got up and I don't know if we still do this, but they gave that, that talk on secular music. Did y'all, who's, who's heard that talk before? Only a few of us, all right? Well, I heard the talk, right? And so what did I do? Stop I stopped, no, I didn't just stop. I went, and I went home and I burned and broke all of my CDs, right? And, and you know what? For that season and for that time, it was probably the best thing that I could have done. Because really what I was doing is I was declaring my allegiance to him and to him alone. And for that season and that time was the best thing. You see, but the problem is is that oftentimes we overcompensate. And now what happens is that we end up, if you listen to secular music, you're the devil. <laughs> right? And what we, And that's what we do is we overcompensate. And what is it? Seeking to justify ourselves. Seeking to justify ourselves. It's as if we're going to, when we get to heaven, it says, the hottie wash the let you into my heaven. Amen, I burnt them CDs back in, <laughs> and I never bought another one since. <laughs> right? Seeking to justify ourselves, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But oftentimes we do that. And then when we do that, when we see the next person coming in and, and talking about and playing that music or taking up things that we have deemed as evil, we begin to look down on others, and we get caught up in these isms we make our laws god's law and we and we begin to trust in our ability or inability to maintain the things that we put on ourselves and it's a subtle danger that we have the way we allow these legalistic tendencies and practices to come into our life and so the first person that Jesus says, there is a Pharisee. There is a man who has put their confidence in what they do and what they don't do. They put their confidence in the fact that they don't look like the rest of the world. They put their confidence in the wrong places. But then he goes and he says, but. And so when he talks about but, the tax collector, ultimately we are meant to contrast the Pharisee. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. While the Pharisee epitomized religious and righteousness, the tax collector epitomized sinfulness. He's the person on death row. He's the person that was the sellout. He's the person that was just wicked in all ways. And you see just the tax collectors. If you just do many studies throughout the New Testament about the tax collectors and the way people saw tax collectors, they were the worst of all people. Right? And so right here, what we're seeing is that it says, but is introducing to the reader that the tax collector is in contrast to this Pharisee. And so what do we recognize? That in many ways, he contrasts them. He says, this tax collector, he's standing far off. He's the person who comes in the church that, you know, he's wilded out and he don't want to be seen because he doesn't think he's even worthy. So he's far off. He's standing in the back. He don't want people to see him because he know people are going to judge him. He's standing physically. He's distant. We see this tax collector, unwilling to even lift his eyes up. There's this this unworthiness where the Pharisee is saying, God, look at all I'm doing for you. The tax collector says, "I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy to even address you, to even look you. You see this tax collector beating his chest. And you can imagine the Pharisee beating his chest with pride. The tax collector beating his chest with repentance. And sorrow and grief. This tax collector is, instead of looking for justice, this this tax collector is pleading for mercy. That he knows that he is deserving. He's deserving punishment. This tax collector is confessing his sinfulness. You see, when we see this idea of the mercy seat, to see the common Jew during that time would have, that they, they would have saw the mercy seat as the thing that right before they offer anything, that the, the blood and the sacrifice and the sprinkles, the sprinkled blood, that there was a sacrifice that was given. And basically what we see right here that the two that he's comparing, he says that God, not man, is the standard of righteousness. That we see. This tax collector is not even looking at the, to the left or to the right. He's not comparing himself. He's just looking to God. And then he understands that all fall short of the glory of God. You see, it's the tax collector that we are called to look at as the model and the example. But the problem is, is that the Pharisee could never bring himself down to the tax collector. In the same way, us churchgoers can never look, put ourselves down to the one on the block. that we struggle with this. There's no way God sees us the same. You see, the problem is, is that we look over the first three chapters of the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, the very essence, it says, okay, you must not understand how bad this is and how bad things really are. Romans 1, 8, 1 18 through 32, he basically talks, starts off and says, listen, the, the, there's so many, wicked. there's so many who run from God, so many people, and this is like, and he talks about these are and. You know, he just goes through the list, and you're just like, yeah, I know. I told you, yeah, those people are bad. But then he goes in chapter 2, 1 through 10, and he says, but even you, those who say that you proclaim the law, you also are hypocritical, and you claim to judge, but you're not right with God. And then he says, even to you, you Jew who think that because of your birthright and you were raised as a Christian, you've always kind of lived a a moral life, that you think that you are good and okay with God. And he says, listen, let me just kind of break this down for you. In Romans chapter 3 and 10, he says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's not one of you that's righteous. And then he goes and he says that you are all wicked before me that your works are like filthy rags. And he says, let me just conclude with this. In Romans three twenty three, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's none of us that measure up. So why do we put our confidence and our trust in ourselves? I've said this before, but it, it reminds me of the idea, like when I was talking about in Catalina, there's a, there's a game that we used to play in California, and it was called Catalina, and the idea of Catalina was... Literally, you would run on the beach, and then you, the goal was before you stepped on the water, you would jump as far as you can to get to Catalina Island. Right? Now, were, yeah, some of y'all looking like, what? <laughs> it's a game. You know, you play it as a kid. But we called it Catalina. And so we would go, and before we hit the water, we would jump. You see, that the reality is, is that some of us were more athletic than others. Some of us were able to jump 10 feet. Some of us was able to jump five feet. Some of us were jumping three feet. You see, but the goal, Catalina Island was miles away. So while some of us were able to jump a little further, how foolish would it have been as we all knew that the goal was to jump to Catalina. And that's the same thing with God to try to put our confidence in ourselves and in our our morality, he's like, what are you doing? Seeking to justify themselves. He says, you You got a wrong perspective of the law. You see, the intent of the law is that the law ultimately exposes our sinfulness. It shows us how bad we really are. You see, the law magnifies the war that's within us. Even the things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And see, every single time there's that war, it's just kind of like, you know, I don't even like ice cream. I like ice cream, but I don't love it, <laughs> right? You see, but then, and that's what happens is that, but as soon as I say, hey, I'm gonna give up ice cream for the next three weeks, why does everybody bring ice cream that day? Everybody, and why do I want ice cream that bad? And I was just like, because there's a war within us. There's something that rises up in our flesh that says that I'm my own God. I'm justified. You see, and it's it's a result of the fall of sin. That's what he says. You will become like God. And ever since that day, we've gotten the order wrong. We want to be the captains of our own soul. Right? And so this is what we see. It exposes the sin. It magnifies the war that we had. It reminds us that we need help. This is the purpose of the law. You see, the law is like a woman or a man who cooks, who was cooking a turkey, who left the turkey and put the, the turkey in the oven or put it on the green egg. And then they forgot about it. And literally. Hours upon hours go by, past the time, and then they was like, oh my gosh, I forgot about the turkey. They go back to the turkey, they lift up the handle or look, look in the turkey, and it's burnt to a crisp. It's burnt down to the core. They forgot about the turkey. And so the law is like going in and you grab a, a fork, one of those big forks. The fork is perfectly good, it's perfectly fine. You stick the fork into the turkey and you lift it up, it comes up a little bit, but then it falls back down. You try to come from it at a different angle, you stick the fork in, you lift it up, it comes up a little bit, but then it falls back down. And no matter how what angle you come from, it goes up a little bit. See, the problem is, is that in order to get the turkey up, it's dependent on two things, the solid essence of the fork, but also the, the strength of the flesh. And because the flesh is burnt, the flesh is wicked, the flesh is weak, it's not able to do its part. You see, grace is different. Grace is not a fork, it's like a spatula. You see, and grace comes in and it goes underneath. And the whole weight of it is dependent upon the strength of the spatula. You see, and this is what grace is. You see, and it's the law, it's our time. It's us trying to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. It's us trying time and time again. It's us keep falling down and getting up on our own merit that keeps reminding us that we're not strong, but that we're weak. And we need something outside. We need someone outside of us to save us. You see, and it's here that the Pharisee and the Sadducee, or I'm sorry, the Pharisee and the tax collector, are coming at it from a completely different perspective. The Pharisee think that I can just try, try better. I know I messed up this week, but this, this next week I'm going to do better. You see, the goal of the Pharisee is perfection. The goal of the Pharisee is perfection. They think that the goal of being a Christian is to be perfect. You see, but the goal of the tax collector is presence. We don't know. What I love about this, we don't know if he's going to give up tax collecting. We don't know if—he just stops. It doesn't tell. He just says, listen, this man will be justified. Why? He's just depending on, I just want to be present with you. And I know that there's things that I'm doing that's keeping me from being present. And you know what, God? I'm going to go out and I'm going to still do some things that's going to disappoint you. And some of you guys are like, oh, man, are." Were you you preaching easy believism to Hadi? No. You see, but the reality is, is that the same conclusion that Paul came to, that, you know, at the end, as he was preaching grace, after he said in chapter 323, all have sinned and fallen fallen short of God's glory. So in 321, he says, apart from the law. Apart from you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he goes on and he says, as he talks about what grace through faith in Christ looks like, and then the people says, well, if grace is all abounds, why don't we just sin all the more? Why don't we just keep on sinning? Since you know, if grace, that's what we to keep preaching is grace, why don't we just all sin? Why don't we just say we believe in Christ and a sin, do whatever you want, right? That's what, that's what all of us functioning legalists, we have problems with grace because we're seeking to justify ourselves. And what does Paul respond? He says, may it never be. May it never be. Those who have died with Christ have also been risen with Christ. You see, the power in which we live the life that we are not able to live in the flesh is through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. We've been raised with Him. So the goal of the believer is presence, not perfection. The goal of the believer is abiding. It's about, it's about being with God. It's about surrendering to Him. And the, the reason why we do all of our isms is so that we can abide with Him because we're tired, we're fatigued, we're, try, we're tired of trying to do it on our own, but we focus, we're constantly cultivating our heart to pursue Him and abide with Him, trust Him. And it's because we got a proper perspective of the law. It's a proper perspective of the law. You see, what I love about this passage and the, even the parable before is that accepting Jesus has nothing to do with how wealthy we are. You have a tax collector and you have a widow who accepted—one with a lot of money, one with very little money. Accepting Jesus is not solely based on our morality. You had an un—you—you you see this idea of a tax collector in the last one. We had a, um, yeah, we have a Pharisee. Accepting Jesus had nothing to do with our social status. Accepting Jesus wasn't about our religious alignment, our denominational affiliations. Accepting Jesus is about accepting Jesus. It's about accepting his good news. You see, but it's only good news if we, if we can come to a Romans three conclusion about ourselves. And if we don't have, the, the, if we don't come to the point that there is none righteous before God, there is no not one, we won't see the gospel as good news. You see, the intent of the law points us and leads us to the cross. The law leads us to Christ. And this is why in verse 14, as we close, it says this I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because one, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the law gives us a proper view of ourselves and a better appreciation for the gospel. The law gives us a proper view of ourselves, but it also gives us a better appreciation of the gospel. You guys got to recognize that Christianity is the only religion that at the very core, it boasts in the humiliation of its God. At the very core of Christianity is the crucifixion. Do you know how bad the crucifixion is in those days? It's like saying that we put all of our confidence in the person who has been put on the death chair, I mean, on the electric chair who's been crucified, like the worst of all people. There there was only certain types of people in their day that went, that was killed by crucifixion. It It was retained for the worst of them. You see, Christianity boasts in Christ's humiliation. In Philippians chapter two, it says, even though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but he said he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Becoming the form of a servant, even taking on the death of a cross. Why does he do that? He does it for you and I. Saints, Christ's work is the only thing that's going to free us of our legalistic ways. It's the only thing that's going to free us. Only Christ's work is going to free us from the performance traps, the isms that we have. So my challenge to you is that we would begin our boast, but our boast would only be in the personal work of our Savior. That we would boast in Christ alone, the death, the burial, the resurrection. That we would transfer our trust from trusting in ourselves and only trusting the risen Christ, the risen Savior. And if anybody in here today has said that I've tried to trust in myself, I keep trying to get my life better. I keep trying to do better. I keep trying to see. The thing is, is that God is saying, listen, you may not, you're never going to be able to meet the standard. You're never going to be able to meet it. He's he's calling you to transfer your trust. Don't be like the Pharisee. Be like the tax collector. Transfer your trust. Boast in Christ and in him alone. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.